BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Um, I, I'm just always curious. How many of y'all have listened to Queerology before? Oh my gosh, okay, thank you. For those of you who haven't, uh, Queerology is a podcast uh, on belief in being that technically centers around people who identify as LGBTQ and of faith in one way or another. Just a lot of casual conversations with people. Um, that's what this is gonna be uh, in a panel form. So excited. Uh, for the sake of the podcast, we're recording from Christ Church Cathedral in downtown Vancouver. Uh, so excited. Have you all give a round of applause so people can hear that you're here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll start by introducing the panelists. Then I have just a couple quick things before we dive in. Um, so first here we have Trey Pearson. Uh, and and with, with Trey's band, Everyday Sunday, uh, they've sold hundreds of thousands of records and amassed millions of streams. Uh, he's scored five number one U.S. singles, 20 top 10 hits, uh, and three years ago, Trey came out of the closet. Um, his announcement started a national conversation with a television appearance on The View, uh, which was nominated for a 2017 GLAAD Award, uh, and has been covered by the New York Times, CNN, and more. Uh, next, I have Matthew Wigmore. Uh, he's the co-founder of One TWU, the advocacy and community group of LGBTQ plus students and alumni at Trinity Western University, uh, while also being the first male identifying gender studies alum from TWU. Matthew holds an MSc in gender policy and inequalities from the London School of Economics, and he continues to advocate for LGBTQ people in faith spaces and hopes to see an end to conversion therapy in his lifetime. Um, and he's, he's doing a, a workshop this afternoon on conversion therapy, yeah. so y'all will want to check that out. Uh, next, I'm switching over my phone because uh, Lee-Nan, Lee yes, yes, okay. <laughs> Lee-Nan was just added yesterday, so uh, fast little switch around. <laughs> uh, Lee-Nan is an ordained minister in the United Church of Canada. Uh, she identifies as lesbian, married to her partner of 24 years, Estelle. Uh, Lenin grew up, grew up Roman Catholic in Ireland and is still in wonder that the Spirit blew her across an ocean and a continent and into ministry. She serves uh, an affirming church, Golden Ears United Church in Maple Ridge, about 50 kilometers east of Vancouver. Welcome. And then finally, uh, Mary Ann Sanders. Uh, Saunders, thank you. <laughs> Saunders. 
Uh, as a professor on faculty at the University of British Columbia, Mary Ann's cross-disciplinary work bridges the traditional disciplines of literary studies, medicine, psychology, sociology, and history. And in relation to the emerging discipline of transgender studies, uh, she's also an active member of Christchurch Cathedral. And quote, I came to the faith through my body. I experienced God, met Jesus, and feel the Spirit in and through my body, and specifically in and through my trans body. Because of this, I long for a theology of trans embodiment. Welcome. So before we dive in, um, two quick announcements. One, Shameless plug, as I was told to give. <laughs> uh, my new book, and this, this goes back to um, Bishop Flunder's kind of conversation around um, eros and, and sexuality. Uh, I have a book coming out, Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms. Uh, that's coming out in January. It's available for pre-order now. Um, my friend Andrew called it the other day, um, I Kiss Straighting Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> So super excited about that. Uh, and then second, I wanted to let you all know about um, the Reformation Project, their conference. They're, they're a U.S.-based organization doing a lot of similar work. Um, but their conference is actually going to be in Seattle uh, this fall in November. Unfortunately, it's the same weekend as Generous Spaces, spaces um, conference as well, so you'd have to pick or choose. But if you're interested in coming to more events similar to this, um, definitely check that out. That's going to be in Seattle in November, so it'll be a lot of fun. Um, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, so I start every podcast with the question uh, of, of, to each person, uh, how do you identify, and then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Sure, yeah. Um, my name is Trey, and I identify as gay. Um, I know we've talked about this briefly before on the podcast, but uh, I, I don't know how my faith has helped me identify mm. my, my sexuality. Uh, if anything, I think it kept me from being able to identify my sexuality for a very long time. And then, um, you know, I think quickly to recap what we've talked about before and for all of you, I would say that uh, through a long progression in my own faith, I was able to come to terms with other people, uh, accepting other people long before I could accept myself. And... Uh, it's because of the work that so many people have done before me and that I was able to um, face those questions that I could not get past growing up, the things that I had been taught. Uh, and so when it comes to um, how my faith now um, you know, coincides with my sexuality, I think it's just more that uh, by the time I got to where I could accept myself, I no longer felt shame uh for i did not think it was a sin to be gay and uh i'm very thankful that i do not wrestle with those sort of things um and so it was more about being able to come to peace uh eh, i guess with with uh a faith that was much more um bigger and inclusive than the one that i grew up with 
Um, I'm Matthew. Uh, I identify as uh, a gay post-evangelical. Um, and I, yeah, I guess um, kind of where my life and sexuality and faith have coincided. Well, I mean, um, as some of you might know, a lot of that has been with activism at Trinity Western. And I think um, what started as just advocating for my classmates um, and now the students who come in um, and even for justice for some of the alumni has kind of turned into a much more heightened awareness of people at the margins and actually extremely holy moments um, of meeting people there. So I think, yeah, I think um, on one sense, uh, my identity is about my attraction, but I also see um, my identity really linked to um, the commission to love people and to go out and to advocate for people and go to the places where people are still um, ignored and marginalized today. And I think that goes beyond just Trinity Western, but we'll talk more about that. So I identify as uh, lesbian, as queer, as Irish, as Catholic, as Protestant. All of these different things are uh, embodied in me. Um, for many years, there was a lot of conflict. I didn't know that I could be both um, lesbian and be a follower of Jesus. I had left the church, um, and it wasn't until uh, I walked into a united church with, uh, and my gaydar went off when the, the, I saw a lesbian in the pulpit. I could not believe, first of all, that there was a woman in the pulpit, and then that there was a lesbian. And when she invited us forward for communion and used the words that it doesn't matter if you are lesbian or gay or trans, you are welcome at this table. And like that, you know, we have defining moments. That was the defining moment in my life where everything kind of fell into place and I was born Again, I was like, I really was born again in that moment. And I'm so grateful for the United Church um, for that experience. That's who I am. Hi, um, I'm Marianne. Uh, for identification, I think there are two key pieces, uh, at least in this context. Uh, one is that um, I'm a trans woman. Uh, and the other is that I'm a non-binary femme. And these two pieces are... Uh, are um, they articulate together. Um, trans woman tells you who I am now. I wasn't always a trans woman, and I don't know if I always will be. I don't know where I go necessarily, or whether this will be me for, for from now till the end of my life. Uh, but non-binary femme is the uh, term that describes who I was from my birth, who I have been throughout my entire life, and who I anticipate always being to the end of it. That's the, that's the identification piece that ties everything else together for me. <clears throat> As for um, how all of this... Did the mic just come on partway through that? Were you able to hear the first part? Okay, all right. Um, the, uh, as for how this informs my faith, I'm going to tell you a, a funny story as quickly as I can. Um, uh, I started hormone therapy several years ago, and when I was, um, when I started hormone therapy, uh, I knew all of the things that were going to happen, or I thought I knew all of the things that were going to happen. Uh, I knew, for example, that um, I would probably have a lot of emotional upheaval, and I knew that um, I would grow breasts, and I knew about a few other things that would have happened. But the thing nobody told me about, probably because nobody expected it, was that it would also produce a, an experience of, uh, of religious conversion or 
being born again. Um, and I'm an Anglican. I'm a lifelong Anglican. We're not supposed to be born again. Um, uh, okay, we're not supposed to have those experiences. Um, and I... <laughs> And, and I, I had this very interesting thing that happened to me, which was that I'd been on the hormone therapy for about four months, and I woke up one day and I realized that I was completely at peace inside. And I, and I hadn't known to that moment that I hadn't been at peace. It was just suddenly something was different. And the thing that was different was that I was, uh, I was still, I, I, have described it as before I had been walking up and down inside of myself, um, pacing all the time. And that morning when I woke up, I realized that I was sitting down. Um, I was able to be calm uh, internally. And then a while later, I don't know, I can't even tell you how much later, I can't tell you where I was, whether I was awake or asleep, because I have no memory of exactly how this happened. But into that calm space, um, uh, Jesus walked and said to me, now that you are able to sit down, there's room for me to sit with you. Mm -hmm. And Jesus sat down with me and has been there ever since. And even sometimes when I feel like um, uh, God is far away or, or the divine is far away, I remember that. And I remember that um, that Jesus is still there, even if I'm not feeling it in that moment, because mm-hmm. he sat down with me then and hasn't left. I, so, so the theme of this kind of episode, panel, talk, uh, is, is where we're going. And I'd be curious, especially kind of in light of recent political movements, recent church movements. I mean, I, I'm obviously coming from the context of the U.S., but from what I understand, Canada is happening, too, everywhere. Um, this kind of hyper-conservative, uh, hyper-fundamentalist um, movement. And each of you are working in very specific ways. Um, I, I'd be curious, in your particularity, like the particularity of your work, where do you see we need to go? What does that work look like yeah for me um my context comes from being a musician and touring around and uh constantly having people reach out uh, on social media or coming to my to my shows and uh so much of the time this is people coming from a context of you know like so many of us of of growing up relig- religious and most of the time in, in a christian environment and feeling like the version of Jesus they were handed uh, wasn't okay with who they are. And so, um, you know, for me, when I, th- I think about where we're going, I do see that the, that, that the world is changing. I see that even the church is changing. Some denominations are coming along much quicker than others. And you see maybe more movement in the mainline traditions. Would you say that in Canada? Is that mainline? Is that a, uh, then the evangelical uh, churches? And, um, you know, it's made me so, so interested in uh, kind of the history of humanity when it came to how long it took for humanity and Christianity to come around on slavery, on women's rights, um, and uh, I do realize that this happens to be a huge topic of conversation, being LGBTQ in the church, um, in our rights. Like, I mean, you know, 
not too long ago, at least in the U.S., and I don't know when it got legalized in Canada, but like it used to be illegal to have same-sex acts in, in the United States, in all 50 states, like less than 50 years ago. And so it's not very far into our recent past. And, you know, so often the way people will try to talk down to you is like, oh, we're not trying to stop you from being gay. It's like, well, that's only because people fought against that. And we're still fighting, and so many people want to turn a blind eye to all the things that we are still fighting for. And they don't understand how there's so many things that they do that make us feel like we are not worthy, uh, that we are not equal, that we do not deserve. You know, like, oh, no, we love you, but we just don't think you're worthy of being loved. You know, and that, and, they, and, and it's like, we love you. Um, you know, there's, there's a huge difference between feeling loved for who you are and being loved in spite of who you are. And those are very, those are very different um, feelings of acceptance. And, and, and there's people in my family, uh, the, my church family growing up, uh, fans that have followed my old Christian band for a long time, that they, they love me, but they don't love me for who I am. They're not proud of who I am. They, uh, you know, there's people that would support me that uh, coming to a concert that wouldn't, and, and, and people in my own family even, that would not even do that anymore because uh, they don't love me for who I am. They're not proud anymore of who I am. And so when I think about where we're going, I think about all these things we still have to fight for, these conversations that we still have to have. And what we know is that the biggest thing that changes hearts is our stories. And it's because people have continued to be bold and brave to share their stories. It's given us the courage to share ours. And so, um, you know, for me, in my work that I do, it's trying to have the conversation. It's having the conversation in my music, in my music videos, in my concerts, in my personal life. Um, and then, you know, even going to the extent that I have uh, to start a, um, a closed group on Facebook called Trey's Safe Space, where thousands of people come together and share their journeys. And they see that they're not alone because when you, you know, that the power of telling your story is the listener finding out they are not alone. And so it's continuing to go, how do we create these spaces? This podcast is a space that has helped so many people. And, uh, and so I think it's, it's continuing for each of us to say, what's one more space we can create? As uh, for those of you who were here last night, hearing the older gentleman share his journey of getting into, you know, the first ordained person in uh, the Canada United Church. Is that what you call it? I have no idea. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, to you know, to getting into politics, and it's continuing not to say, uh, "Oh, I can't change the world." It's saying, "What's my part?" And so for me, it's it's yeah, it's with, it's with my music, it's with my activism, and uh, and um, just trying to continue to think about spaces that we can share our stories. Um, that's a really interesting question because uh, kind of the thing that I and many others have been pushing for at Trinity Western only happened really recently. And so <laughs> we're still kind of in celebration mode, but even uh, in that, there's some sense of where we need to go forward. So just, just to give you some quick context, Trinity Western is a Christian liberal arts university out um, in Langley. It was started by the Evangelical Free Church. Don't be fooled. It is not free of evangelicals. There are lots of them there. <laughs> um, 
And part of being able to attend Trinity uh, was you had to sign this document called the Community Covenant, and there was lots of rules and regulations that probably aren't atypical to what an evangelical community has, but one of them was to um, abstain from sex outside the one-man, one-woman, boring-ass marriage model. Um, and so... Uh, that, and that was really interesting for a lot of people because the minute I came out on campus, it was kind of like opening um, the floodgates to kind of all the other stories um, that uh, I, I got to bear witness to and was really um, honored to. And then when Trinity um, decided they wanted a law school, um, there were some major uh, legal implications to that. Um, some of you might remember in 2001, uh, Trinity actually opened a teacher's college and there was some pushback against that. And so Trinity was quite confident, confident that, oh, we won the teacher's college fight at the BC Supreme Court. Uh, we are going to be all set to get this law school. Um, the biggest difference between 2001 and 2016 is that gay marriage became legal in that time. It became legal um, a few years after. Uh, and so that, that, that was a really interesting moment because when we first started 1TW, the whole idea was just to have a place we could meet and support each other on campus. I think in some ways we kind of accidentally and necessarily became uh, political. Um, and it was, I think it was really tempting to turn it into a political fight, like let's be the big intercedents in the Supreme Court case, let's get out there as much, but actually by just saying uh, we're here, we're not going anywhere, these are our stories, and leaving it there, that became immensely powerful. <laughs> and it's amazing how people's attitudes will change when you just say, I'm here and this is my story. It's a very hard thing to debate. Um, so, thankfully, in uh, 2017, uh, Trinity lost their Supreme Court of Canada case, uh, and it was on the basis of the Community Covenant. It's actually um, a really, I mean, you might not find this interesting, but if you want to go back and read the Supreme Court's decision, it's extremely nuanced. Um, and I think um, what Trinity learned in that process is they were trying to uh, make a petition of uh, minority rights versus religious freedom, uh, and I'm thankful to live in a country where uh, it's a bad idea to put those two things up against each other. So um, Trinity lost, and then a couple months after, made the community covenant no longer mandatory to sign. So you could attend, and you didn't have to sign. And I wish the story ended there, and many people think it does. Mm. The one hidden piece to that is... Um, before uh, the change to the community covenant, staff and faculty also had to sign the community covenant, but they were given three conditions. So for example, Dr. Robin Healy, who was our teacher sponsor for 1TW, when she would go to sign the covenant, she would put in a condition on, I don't agree with this interpretation of Paul's message that would uh, manifest this policy of no, no uh, relationships outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Well, at the same time that Trinity made it no longer mandatory for students to sign the covenant, they took away faculty and staff's ability to write in their conditions. So what does that say to you? You can go here, you don't have to sign the document anymore, but you might not have the mentors you need, right? And that's become quite difficult because we were hoping that after that process, uh, it would become possible for LGBTQ staff and faculty to come on board, and I think that's really important for the wider community at Trinity. There's always been a high reverence of faculty and staff at Trinity, and to have someone who 
as both a person of faith, but also LGBTQ, I think is a really important example. And currently that's not possible. Um, and I think that is representative of the wider narrative. We've had some major wins these past few years. And I think we'll talk more about that today. But sometimes even simultaneously as those major wins occur, there's also some losses. So going forward, we still have another fight. <laughs> there's still more to do. But again, my intention, and um, I can say quite happily, the um, kind of verdict within the 1TW community is, we'll go forward again the same way we had, and that is telling our stories. So, yeah. So our congregation, little congregation, um, about, I don't know, 70 people worshiping every Sunday. Uh, I've been there seven years, and... Um, gently for the first couple of years suggesting wouldn't it be great if we were an affirming congregation and people said yeah 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 what are you going to do about it but the rules and the wisdom of the affirming process is that the minister is not to be the one who takes the the main leadership role in it because i have to be pastoral to people on both sides so it wasn't until there was a sufficient number of allies in the congregation in leadership uh, who who picked up the flag and said, we want to do this process to become an affirming congregation. And so I think that the future for LGBTQ folks, we need allies. We, we, um, we can't do this without allies. And I don't know if allies is a non-politically correct term now. Somebody said yesterday, oh, you can't say ally. There's another word for it. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what the word is, so I'm going to say ally. And I just made buttons that say ally, so I'm saying allies. Uh, so that's, that's one of the things uh, going into the future that I do believe that we need allies. Um, in terms of the congregation, uh, in terms of congregational ministry, uh, a lot of people, once we began the process of becoming affirming, said, well, you know, why do we really need to do this? Because everybody knows already that the United Church is welcoming. Why should we have to go through this process? It looks like a lot of paperwork. It looks like really hard work. Um, let's, just, let's just put the flags out there already. And, uh, and I thought, you know, they are a pretty welcoming community. They've called me a lesbian minister. They welcome my wife. Um, there are other queer people in the cong congregation. But where I really believed that the, their roadblock was, was around trans issues and welcoming trans folks. And um, it wasn't until we had lots of events uh, Saturday events, learning events during the week, and attendance was, you know, it was always the same folk who really already believed the message. So we realized we need to bring people to where the main body of people are gathered. And so um, I saw a huge transformation happen when we had people like Lauren uh, come and preach and share her testimony and her story. And um, I saw hearts melt and change and people believe uh, came up to her afterwards and said you have changed my mind I would have voted no but now I will vote yes so personal stories uh, I think are very 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 powerful um, in whatever um, political movements that we're doing we can't forget our stories and the power of them and then I also want to think about uh, people in ministry in the United Church. One of the 
ways I serve the wider church is on the candidacy and admissions board. And uh, we interview uh, people who are putting themselves forward um, for ministry. And I see many LGBTQ candidates, and I see many who are refugees from other denominations, uh, like myself. I might consider myself to be a refugee from the Catholic Church. I'm very grateful for my spiritual formation in the church, but I am so much more, uh, this is my home now, and I'm grateful for people like Tim and Gary who have gone before um, uh, opening a path for uh, queer people in ministry. Um, but I, I don't think that we can just take it for granted that, well, this is our little safe space in ministry. I think that we have to think beyond the denominational uh, borders. Um, I think I live stream every synod, every general meeting of all of the mainline denominations, um, both in uh, the United States and here in Canada, um, because what happens to my sisters and brothers and siblings in those denominations um, affects affects us. I can't just think, well, we've got it, we've got it made in the United Church. So my heart breaks and bleeds for my um, uh, siblings in the United Methodist Church uh, this year and the decisions that were made there. Um, I have colleagues in ministry in the United Church who have come uh, from the United Methodist Church and have transferred in. Um, but I know that that the fight still has to be within the denomination for for change, and I think that uh, um, we have to be their allies and we have to be their supporters and not just um, stay in our little silos of denominations so um, that was great. It kind of um, uh, segues nicely into some of the comments that I would make. Um, and uh, I'm actually going to divide my comments into kind of two pieces because I feel like I could answer this question in two ways. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and those two pieces um, involve my uh, professional work at uh, the University of British Columbia um, and also the work that I do as a lay member of the congregation here at Christchurch Cathedral. Um, my work at the University of British Columbia, which is a secular institution, um, doesn't have anything to do with uh, the church or with people's faith lives or with religion or anything like that. You know, I'm a, my background is in literary studies. Uh, I teach students about research culture. Um, I teach children's literature courses, um, and so on. But, um, uh, but I also happen to be trans, and um, uh, and I transitioned uh, in my uh, in my work in a in a very public way um, within that context. And um, the way that I teach, so in a sense, that work has nothing to do with my. Uh, life as a person of faith or my life in the church. Um, but also uh, the way that I teach is um, one that is rooted in, um, in, in story and in, uh, often in my own story. And I try to um, get my students to think about the ways in which their own stories and their own lives uh, might inform how they do their academic work um, so that they can integrate that sense of self with whatever it is that they're doing at the university. So um, in my teaching, I often have brief moments of self-disclosure. Um, 
And one thing that I disclose probably to every class that I teach is that I, uh, I belong to a faith community, right? Not with any intention except to um, possibly shift some of my students' perceptions about what faith communities are or what they're like and who's in them, right? Uh, because for people who live secular lives, there is this impression that, um, that churches and faith communities uh, are not welcoming of or do not have in them any LGBTQ2S um, people. And of course, um, we know that it's true that a lot of faith communities are not welcoming of us, but... Also, some are. Um, and one of the effects that this has, which, and I'll give you one example because I was so delighted to see it. Um, this past year, um, so in the course that I teach on research culture, I'm teaching first year students what it means to be researchers and how you can be researchers. But I make them do this within the context of the discipline of trans studies, which none of them have ever encountered before. Um, and, um, and, uh, and it's a challenge for them in a whole lot of ways. But I always say to them, look, consult your own experience. Who are you? Right? What do you like? So I, for example, I once had a student who did a research project. She's, uh, she's, she was really into roller derby. Um, for those of you who are familiar with roller derby, it's a sport that's played on roller skates. Uh, it's a relay sport. Um, uh, she was really into roller derby. Uh, and so she decided to do her research project for the term on, uh, on um, sort of uh, what trans women's inclusion in roller derby, women's roller derby looked like, right? So this gives you an example of, of how my students can do trans studies while also consulting their own experience. So this past year, I had two students um, uh, doing a joint research project on, um, on transgender clergy um, in a variety of churches and contexts. Um, and, um, and what was interesting to me about this was that um, the, of these two students, um, uh, one was a Buddhist uh, and the other belonged to an evangelical uh, uh, came from an evangelical church, an evangelical background that was not inclusive of trans people. But over the course of our time together, in the course of our, uh, or of LGBTQ people more broadly, over the course of our time together and the work that we did together, it led him to want to do research about what it would look like to be part of a community where trans people could actually serve in roles of leadership, right? So, um, so, uh, so while, as I said before, in a sense, my work at the university has nothing to do with my work um, or uh, the, my position as a layperson here at Christchurch Cathedral. In fact, of course, they spill over into each other, and we're always who we are wherever we are. Um, here at Christchurch Cathedral, um, uh, which is um, uh, really an extraordinarily inclusive uh, congregation in so many ways, um, uh, when I came out as trans, I quickly became aware of the ways in which we really weren't attending to um, uh, whoever the trans people are or might be or could show up or whatever, in our midst, whether those were people who were coming uh, to church 
or whether they're people who are coming to concerts at the cathedral because we're a concert venue, or whether they're people on the margins who are coming to um, uh, um, uh, coming to our community meals, or who are coming to uh, we function as a food bank hub for uh, for the um, for the. Vancouver Food Bank. Um, there was we weren't really attending at all to um, to uh, the possibility that there might be trans people here, right? And so one of the things that that um, led me to do was to um, start a conversation about changing our bathroom signage. That was a conversation that I started three years ago, um, and uh, the new bathroom signage downstairs is barely two weeks old. Um, so it took us three years to get there, but we got there. Um, and um, and so now um, I'm. Uh, um, Every church should be doing that. I just want to put that out there. I don't care if you don't think there are any trans people in your church. Change your bathroom signage. Get on it. Do it. It's not hard, right? Um, and um, and I'm going to let us rest with that for a little while because I want people to feel good about this change. But two, three, four years from now, I'm going to be pushing for... Um, uh, ungendered bathrooms. That's where we have to go. But this is where we are now. But someday, I want to see uh, those bathrooms downstairs being universal bathrooms. Um, so I'm all about practical stuff like that. I like doing, I like these little practical things that uh, let uh, the people in our community know that they're welcome in very, um, in very tangible ways. And that's a tangible thing. And it's also really important because it's an educational thing for everybody else in the community, right? Um, it, uh, it, um, it, uh, it changes the way people perceive the space that they occupy, the way cisgender people occupy that space and understand their own place in it, and the ways in which the assumptions that we make about space um, uh, or the preconceptions that we have about space as being inclusive, um, uh, in fact, um, are just that, preconceptions and spaces are not inclusive unless we specifically do the work to make them that way. So, so, that's, um, that, uh, so that's one example, and I could give you lots more examples, but, um, but that would, that'll do for now. Because um, I think I'll have an opportunity to say more about other examples of this kind of thing as this conversation goes on, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Is my mic still on? Can you all still hear me? Okay. <laughs> Just making sure. Uh, I thought it turned off for a second. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I'm hearing kind of two things in commonality between all your answers. One, like the importance of story. I think every single one of you touched on that. Um, and then every single one of you touched on this idea of, of practicality, maybe with not, without being super explicit about it, but, but this idea of we have to be doing things too, and not that sharing stories, not doing things. Um, it, it, it took me back to what Bishop Flunder was saying earlier today, kind of talking about strategy. And, and the need to be very strategic, the need to be able to kind of think through what our moves are. Uh, I, I'd be curious in hearing, and, and maybe even conversation amongst yourselves, um, what that kind of role of strategy is, that, that practicality, that like how do we get to where we're going 
I'm hearing sharing stories, I'm hearing changing policies. Um, for all of us who are kind of in this room, who are wanting to do that in our own communities, what do we need to be doing? Yeah, I mean, just to touch on what you're saying, if it wasn't for working for those policies to change, for, um, for how people perceive it, uh, the way that people perceive it is very intertwined with um, what the law is, what, uh, what is ex- expected or accepted, uh, whether it's what the sign on the bathroom door or whether it's legalizing gay marriage. And, you know, it's like, I, I forget, uh, only a few years before gay marriage was legalized in the United States, um, most uh, Republicans were, were against it. And even a lot of uh, Democrats in the United States were against it. And the public perception has completely flipped in just the three years since, uh, or four years since the Supreme Court said gay marriage was legalized across the country. And so um, it does take both because the laws cannot change unless we change, uh, unless we share our stories. But unless we change the laws, the public perception cannot continue to grow. It's like, what I was saying about same-sex acts being illegal only 50 years ago, and it's still technically illegal in some states. Uh, um, also, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, black and white people were drinking from different water fountains, mm-hmm. and um, we can't even fathom that today. But unless we keep doing this work, the, the small things, the details of changing the bathroom signs to... Um, fighting whether kids grow up in churches that wouldn't marry them because they're queer. Um, You know, it's all of these things. Unless we fight to say this bigotry is not accepted, then um, that public perception is not going to continue to change. The the psychological damage that happens to a vast majority of our community is not going to change. And so we have to fight for it. And if people hadn't been fighting, we would not be where we are now. But I also believe that, you know, I very much believe with all my heart because of the work that's being done that 50 years from now, people will look at gay marriage like we look at black and white people drinking from different water fountains. They will be like, what? You didn't let LGBTQ people get married? That's insane. You know, just like we would say, just like we would say now, wait, you used to have slaves, you owned people? And and there's still so much racial justice to be done. Don't get me wrong. But Yes, we, we have come a long way, at least since that. And, uh, and we still have a long way to go in all of these things. But, you know, it's continuing to understand even, like, um, what you were saying about uh, people's perceptions might have changed towards lesbian and gay people. But, you know, I mean, we haven't even talked about bisexuality today. And there's so much bi erasure still happening. And, and, and we have to get that there's a spectrum, and most of us are on it. And, uh, and, and, and so, yeah, we do, having trans people come on, on the stage in your church is so important. Having bisexual people, uh, people coming in and talking about the spectrum is so important and continuing to understand the, um, what's almost becoming cliche, but it's still so important to remember that, uh, you know, if one of us is not free, none of us are free and, and continuing to remember how much there is to fight for in every single detail. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, 
I think similar to, tr to what Trey said, um, at least within 1TW, one of the things that I, and I encourage many others to do is to navigate, is to what do you do when you have so many different levels of liberty within one group? So for example, it is much easier to come on campus, um, not completely easy, but much easier if you're a lesbian or gay, but what do you do if you're trans, right? There's no gender neutral washrooms on campus, to my understanding. Um, there's been no headway on kind of making more inclusive housing. Um, and Trinity has a policy that if you uh, attend in your first year, you either have to live on campus or with your family. So if you can't live with your family, you have to live on campus because you're coming out of town or whatever. And there's no policy for your inclusion or your protection. Uh, what do you do with that? And, and, that's, uh, and that's difficult because at so many times it can seem like our strategy is to just deal with the covenant and get that done. But what do we do when there's people who are relying on us and who are part of the community who have many other concerns, right? Let, let's move away from sexuality and gender for a moment. When we have indigenous LGBT students, right? And going to a school that is on unceded First Nations territory is extremely dehumanizing and in some days more dehumanizing than going to a school where they feel like their sexuality is erased, right? And if they're part of a group where they feel like, yeah, you, I can come here with my sexuality through the door, but I have to check the fact that I'm indigenous at the door, we're not really doing any favors. So I think at least one of the things we've tried to do, and I say we, it's not me, it's we, is have a people-centered strategy um, and I think that's the nice thing is because <laughs> we're not a charity, we're not, we don't have an incorporation number or anything like that. We can have a fairly flat hierarchy and just take the time to listen to each other and the kind of benefit of being in this post-Supreme Court world at the moment is that, is that we do have the advantage of doing that. So having a people-centered um, strategy and then always taking a posture of listening. If there's one thing I find really discouraging at the moment, it's that we seem to have forgotten to listen to each other and, there, and I mean, don't get me wrong, there's some very valid reasons for that. When you feel like your liberties are under attack, the first thing rightly you want to do um, is defend them. But if we can create these spaces where we truly feel that we can take a pause, I think um, that listening part is uh, really important. Going back to what I was saying about having multiple sense of liberty within one organization, if there's one term I hate at the moment, it is identity politics. And the reason I hate that word is because if you don't like the fact that I'm claiming rights based on my identity, don't take them away based on my identity. And so what we tried to develop in 1TW as well is, yes, let's be proud of our identity. We're not trying to grab anything from each other. We're trying to support each other. Um, and terms like intersectionality can be extremely helpful to work through that. So the, I think the big uh, salient point of what I'm saying is have a people-centered policy and have a people-centered strategy. So You stole my word. Intersectionality. Um, so I think in the wisdom of the uh, firm process is uh, that they challenge the congregations to look at welcoming far more broadly beyond welcoming LGBTQ people, to look at um, how are people with disabilities welcomed in your congregation? How are people who are racially marginalized welcome in your congregation? How are people who are homeless? How are people who are um, uh, drug users? So, um, and I think that's a real gift of the Affirm uh, process is to, is to try to take those blinders off because 
the same conversation that we have, well, we are already welcoming. Um, and then you look around, well, we're not actually. Yes, we have, um, we have doors that people can uh, enter. We have washrooms that are accessible. But our chancel is completely inaccessible. Someone in a wheelchair can't make it up here. And, and, and in fact, uh, every week when there's a, a reader who has a mobility issue, they have to read from the, the ground. So um, we still, as a congregation, have work to do on... Um, and I know that lots of congregations uh, have, have continued work to do. Um, I'm going to go away and think a lot about uh, what Bishop Flunder said about the cicada time and uh, how, like, our tendency to uh, go out in the streets and dance and rejoice that we have um, done what we, you know, we've, we've achieved something. Uh, but the, the chilling idea that there is a um, conservative um, movement underground about to burst forth, just, um, it burst my bubble just a little bit. I like, I've sensed it. I think we all sense it. We just have to turn on the television, turn off the Netflix and turn on the news. Um, uh, so many of us um, go home and we want to escape the the... It's too hard to just keep absorbing the the pain and the politics, um, but I think uh, our our role in the church has to constantly be holding up uh, the mirror uh, to the congregation about what's going on in the world, how that relates to our faith, um, and how how we can respond to it. Still holding a hopeful. Um, like, I don't want people to go away uh, every week going, well, I might as well just kill myself. Um, I, want, I want people to come from church feeling empowered um, and to feel like they belong to a movement that is part of a bigger movement. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to take a lot from, from this weekend uh, away and... Uh, think about it. This is a hard question for me because I am not a strategic person. Um, I, <laughs> and I want to say that this is, a, this is partially a product of privilege, of being, um, of being uh, white, middle-class, well-educated, employed, and so on. I have been able to kind of blunder my way through life and somehow manage to uh, survive and, and, and thrive. So it's, it's actually really hard for me to think about what, what strategy looks like. Mm. Um, so, I, but, I, but I have a couple of little thoughts. One was just as from the perspective of a layperson um, who is um, who's really active, or reasonably active, there are other people who are way more active than I am, but reasonably active within my congregation here. Um, uh, you know, going back to that example of the bathroom signage, once I decided that needed doing, then the next thing I did was say, well, I need to get on parish council. I never wanted to be on parish council in my life. Um, and uh, there I was, I, I got, and I got elected to parish council, and I was like, how did this happen? Oh yeah, that's right, Jesus visited me a couple of years ago. Uh, that's how I ended up here. <laughs> Thanks a million. <laughs> 
um, but it's but it's um, uh, but but it's but for me it, it's it's uh, part of part of that strategic approach is just bringing the things that if it's a strategy at all bringing the things that I think we need um, to the attention of the church in a way that, in a context where I actually feel like um, I also have some leverage, right? Which is, um, uh, which is why I decided I wanted to um, have a formalized relationship with, um, w- with, the, with the institution through being on parish council. The other thing that I would say, and this kind of picks up on a thing, a few things that people have said. Um, uh, Trey talking about bi erasure, um, and uh, Lena and talking about uh, about you know thinking about things like um, uh, disability and accessibility. Um, I think we're going to have a. I think we're going to have a. a uh, a larger conversation this afternoon is my understanding um, with a panel of Anglicans in relation to um, the weird things that have been happening lately um, around um, uh, changing our changing our um, our canons, our laws to allow for um, uh, same-sex marriage in the Anglican Church. And so I'm not I don't because and some of you may be aware of the of the. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even really sure what word to use. The, 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 the odd, difficult, um, disappointing uh, conversations that we've been having in the Anglican Church lately. Um, I want to back up from that a little bit um, and tell you another story because this is. Um, uh, so I'm. Um, I'm uh, involved with a. Uh, uh, a camp called Camp Out. Camp Out is a uh, leadership camp for a queer, trans, and two-spirit youth. Um, uh, and um, I've served uh, Camp Out in a few different ways. Chiefly, I have been a, a member of the leadership team for two camps a couple of years ago. We all go off into a reasonably remote location where it's just a whole bunch of queer folk in the woods um, and nobody else. It's Awesome, um, and um, uh, and um, so I've been part of the leadership team, and I'm also part of the um, uh, the advisory council for that camp. So um, the first year I went to camp was 2016, and um, I uh, and I got back from, and it was it was um, it was a life changing experience for me uh, for reasons that. I won't go into, but it really was one of those watershed moments in your life where you go, there was the me before and there's the me after. Um, and, and, and the me after, um, after camp out is different from the me before. Mm-hmm. And that year was the year that, so in the Anglican Church, if we want to change our, mer- change our laws, our canons, we have to um, get a certain um, uh, supermajority threshold in a variety of different um, uh, what are called houses um, twice at two subsequent uh, synods, two subsequent national meetings. And so, so the first one was in 2016 when we just very barely passed a draft 
change to our marriage canon to allow for same-sex marriage. Um, we just had, and forgive me for those of you who are already familiar with this, we just had the follow-up synod uh, um, last month, and uh, we had to do the second vote, and it failed. Mm. It did not go. Um, uh, there are other things happening that are allowing for um, same-sex marriage to be taking place in the Anglican Church anyway, at least in some places, but we don't have that formalized, um, canonical, um, uh, that, uh, canonical form, you know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> Uh, so when I came back from Camp Out, and, uh, and, and we were all in a bit of an uproar three years ago because what had happened was that it seemed like the vote hadn't passed, and then we realized that there had been a miscount, and then it did pass. Uh, it did pass just barely, and people were upset. People who were against the change of their marriage canon were upset. People who were for it were upset. Everybody was mad at everybody else. And I had just spent four days with young people whose ideas about sexuality, about gender, about how these are related to each other, what they can look like, were so far outside these stupid binary categories of gay, straight, trans-cisgender, who had such amazing and subtle and beautiful and multifarious ways of talking about what desire looks like, what gender identities look like. And I was like, and we're fighting over whether gay people can get married in our church? Do you think that any of those young people would look at this institution and think there was anything here for them? No, 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 absolutely not. Because if we can't get something as basic as that down, then what's here for these people who are thinking about uh, these matters in ways that those of us who are stuck in our binary notions can't even conceive of? So in terms of strategy, we need to be talking to and really listening to our queer, our trans, our non-binary youth in the church, the few that we have, yeah. because they're the ones who are going to be teaching us where we have to go. At least the ones that are brave enough to even yeah. come out and talk about That's it, because right. so many of them aren't. Yeah. Little kids like me that were so scared you yeah. were going to do whatever it took to act straight, right? And yeah. so... It's like, this is not just, oh, we don't have any gay kids in our church. We don't have any trans kids. You don't know. And so, yeah, find them where you can find them, but it's not that easy sometimes. No. I, I mean, I think, I think here, the Anglican church being a, a mainline church and a reasonably, um, uh, reasonably safe church in a lot of ways, we may have more of them than yeah. you had in the churches you were growing up in. Well, I do but, think no matter what, if a kid is growing up in a church yeah. where they even think, oh, yeah, yeah, this church, they seem like they like gay people, but they wouldn't marry me. They're yeah. still getting some kind of psychological oh, damage. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I say we open up the floor for questions. We probably have time for one, honestly. Um, <laughs> Hi, my name is Bob Peacock, and I identify as gay. I'm with my husband of 51 years, and thank you. 
and, and, and growing up for me as a Anglican, but Presbyterian first, then Anglican, then Baptist, then full gospel, and then Pentecostal, and loving my Pentecostal roots more so than anything else, is that one of the things that we haven't spoken about today is our own internal homophobia and what goes on within us, in our own community. In our community, we still have people that are afraid of transgender people. We have people who don't understand the new language for people who identify as binary, as non-binary, as anything other than gay or lesbian. You know, in my day, we were just dykes and fags, <laughs> is what we were called, and we had to fight against that. For somebody just to come up and call me a homosexual, I thought that was a tribute, instead of the fag jokes all the time. You know, so what we have to do too, if we're going to move forward, we can't move forward unless we as a people, as a community, as lovers of each other, and as Bishop Planner said this morning, look at our otherness, look at who we are as individuals, and love each other first. If we can't love each other, how the hell can we love anything else? As RuPaul would say, right? Yeah. RuPaul would say. And on the other thing, going forward, I urge everybody here, please, when, when Bishop Plunder and, and, and uh, Trey brought it up, the conservatism that is happening in this country, not just what's happening in the United States, it's happening here. And I hate to get political about it, but we have to become political animals because it's true. The analogy that Bishop Plunder used this morning about the cicada mm -hmm. is excellent. Mm -hmm. Because that conservative movement in this country, from Manitoba, from New Brunswick, from Prince Edward Island, from Nova Scotia, from Saskatchewan and Alberta, who want to take away every right that Gary and, and, and Tim, myself, and Lloyd, and all of you, in one way or another, have fought for, will be taken away. Because we have become complacent and apathetic. So we have to get on the bandwagon, people, and we have to fight Fight, fight. Other questions? This is actually a question. Uh, what encourages you? Well, what? What encourages you as you sit here today? I mean, what encourages... <laughs> you know who our president is, right? Um, uh. No, uh, but, you know, what encourages me is... Uh, being at my home city pride and seeing 800,000 people at the parade and seeing, being on a float singing one of my songs and seeing parents there with their little children uh, waving and um, seeing families saying, this is where the life is at and uh, you are loved, you are loved. And, and um, I don't think you really meant it, but let's not say I don't want to be political because what a, what a silly thing to think that um, the way we want to be governed, whether it is by um, our country or by our church, uh, what it, if, if there are things that are sending signals to children that, oh, well, you might be okay in this space. You might be okay. Oh, we, we'll, we'll let you identify as gay now, but you can't do this. Um, just those mixed signals makes a kid and even adult, adults think, oh, there's still something broken about me. There's still something wrong with me. And so everything we're doing to change that. When I 
when I saw um, President Obama, uh, you know, light up the White House in rainbow colors when gay marriage was legalized, when I saw him put the Medal of Courage on Ellen and to see their tears, um, that encourages me. When I see little kids at the Pride Parade, that encourages me. When I see a, a gay couple getting married in a church, that encourages me. And I do believe the world is changing. I just sometimes wish it was changing a little bit faster. Um, well, I have, I guess I'll share a particular anecdote that has really encouraged me lately. Um, I mean, obviously, drag queens encourage me. Drag queens encourage all of us. Um, but <laughs> uh, actually, a few months ago, one of my former professors at Trinity um, referred me on to someone that they met at preview weekend, so when they opened up the campus to students and everything, and there was an openly identifying gay student who wanted to come to campus and was really, like, thinking through whether this could be a place for them. <laughs> and even... I remember, like, right after I left, someone um, asking me, would you recommend to um, an LGBTQ person to go to Trinity at this point? I'm like, I had a fabulous academic experience, but I would, I would, I would be cautious to do that, knowing how much potential harm that's there. I, I think when it comes to all of our integrity, we always try to limit the amount of harm we can recommend people into. Uh, but it, it is encouraging to see even just a small place that people only really cared about for a brief amount of time when there was a massive Supreme Court case around it, um, start to embrace change more and embrace conversation. I find that really encouraging. Um, I also find really encouraging the amount of fight that's still left in people. Um, we'll talk about it more this afternoon, but um, now that the topic of conversion therapy is starting to come into the fold, it's really, it's just, it's beautiful to see people who have fought beforehand get right back up and fight again. It's beautiful to see people who you never thought would be a part of that fight and never thought had the posture to listen to begin to do that. Um, and it's encouraging to see um, leaders, politicians, you name it, uh, not treat us tokenistically and not treat us um, as an afterthought, but actually think of us into the center. And so I find all of those things very encouraging. When we became affirming, uh, one of the things we did was to proudly hang a trans flag and a rainbow flag outside the church. And they lasted for a whole month. Um, and in that month, uh, different people came to the church for the first time. There was a trans couple. Uh, we have now got a, a woman who is 91 years old who is trans. Uh, who sits and has coffee with the little old church ladies and just belongs. It's just such a beautiful thing. But then the flags were stolen, and so we thought uh, that this is, you know, it's a sign of the, the community not being behind this. But we had so much community support from those flags being stolen. It was a blessing in disguise. The word got out. You know, they say don't read the comments in a newspaper article. Well, we re I read the comments. There was... Un unanimous support um, uh, from the people of Maple Ridge for uh, what we had done for becoming an affirming congregation. Um, and they got behind us and how can we help you? How can we, you know, um, we'll, let's all hang flags out, you know? So it was, uh, that was encouraging to see a community um, uh, behind us. And it's encouraging to see people who previously would not feel safe coming into a church, um, just, you know, catching their breath when they see, that's a trans flag outside a church, mm. and taking that step in. And I know the terror that they must feel walking in the door that first time and to, to feel a genuine welcome. That's encouraging. Um, 
I'm going to answer this question in a couple of ways. Uh, first, uh, just going back to briefly to what I was talking about a moment ago, one thing that encourages me even out of the fiasco that uh, was the <laughs> marriage canon vote um, wasn't entirely a fiasco, but one thing that encourages me from the Anglican Church's most recent synod was um, that we are changing and we are developing. You know, one thing that happened, and it was unconnected with the marriage canon vote, but uh, the synod also voted to establish a self-determining indigenous Anglican church in this country, which was an extraordinary thing. Probably should have happened 20 years ago, but it happened. Um, and um, and in, in many ways, the reason why the marriage canon vote failed was because we have a, an archaic voting system, not because the will of the church was not there, right? It's because we have a stupid, archaic voting system that's set up to maintain the status quo. And I don't know how we change that. But uh, but the fact is um, that um, uh, the will is there. Um, our 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 um, our formal structures were getting in our way in that instance. Um, and uh, and in relation to that, the other thing that I find encouraging is the number of uh, bishops and dioceses across the country who immediately afterwards said, well, we are going to authorize um, uh, same-sex marriage in our diocese anyway, even though we couldn't change the marriage canon. So it means that that happens in a patchwork across Canada at this point within the Anglican Church, but it is happening, right? Um, the other thing that encourages me, and I have a little show and tell here, um, uh, it's uh, kind of unrelated with unrelated to that, but I want theologies, I want specifically trans theologies. I need them. I want them so much. And I'm, run, I'm doing a workshop this afternoon to talk about what trans theologies of embodiment would look like or could look like or how we could create them together. But um, I'm encouraged by the number of books that have come out in the last two, three years, exploring, examining what it looks like to listen to what trans people have to say and gender non-conforming people and non-binary people have to say about their, um, uh, about their uh, faith lives, their spiritual lives, and how that can shape and inform and produce uh, theologies that we really need. And not just for, not just for, uh, not just for those of us who are trans or gender non-conforming or non-binary, but that the whole church needs. Um, and uh, and I'm, I, I have a little stack here if any of you are curious to see them or take pictures of them so that you can read them and use them in your own churches starting next week. Um, uh, I encourage you to come uh, and, and see me and just see what I have here. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm like looking at the title. You have such good books in that pile. I, like, I want to come to your workshop. Um, <laughs> Uh, we have 10 minutes left, so one more, and we'll keep it popcorn-y, brief. Hello, my name is Mark, and my question is, for those of you who have conversations uh, with conservative-minded people and have had seen success in seeing them change their mind and accepting um, all people, um, what, what do you think has been, uh, what has been the turning point? I know it's, every situation is different, but has there been a consistent theme? Has it been... 
um, exploring different interpretations of theology, or has it been the personal story aspect that's had the most impact across the, the board? I mean, I can answer that uh, in one way. I, so I, I will answer that question, but I think what I'll say in response to that initially is to have um, a conversation with someone who disagrees with you about something as substantial as your sexuality or gender identity. I think there needs to be like a common premise accepted first. So I'm willing to have a conversation with someone who believes that religious freedom trumps conversion, uh, becomes trumps banning conversion therapy, or religious freedom trumps um, uh, civil liberties for LGBT people. I'm willing to have that conversation, even though I abhorrently disagree with, with those positions, but there needs to be a common premise accepted first and foremost of my humanity as a person and the humanity of the people um, we're talking about. And, and I think a willingness not to debate people's existence, but rather actually debate the larger terms, recognizing that whatever positions we land on, these people exist and they have every right to live in a full and gracious society like anyone else. And, and so what I've seen is in the same way I'm willing to come to that conversation and perhaps reconsider some of my beliefs or at least leave them a bit to the side to listen to someone, I think there needs to be that expectation that I need you to affirm my humanity if we're going to have this conversation. And I, and I have seen that happen before. A very good friend of mine who um, works at Trinity Western um, would probably still take a more conservative position on... Um, gay marriage, uh, but has come to see the damage of uh, conversion therapy um, through a lot of evidence I was able to provide to them. Uh, and, and we were able to have that conversation because they said that at the end of the day, I would still attend your wedding, I would still advocate for you to be a part of the church, I just have trouble reconciling it personally, right? So, there, so in that instance, there was a common acceptance of humanity for people who aren't willing to kind of um, commit to accepting that premise that I'm a human being, I, I deserve the rights I have. Where I've seen some change around that uh, is just kind of with um, a lot of stories. So with 1TW, the first kind of political thing we did, um, maybe don't do this, but <laughs> uh, we hijacked the school newspaper and printed a bunch of stories in it after it had already been approved by the president. And so <laughs> then suddenly it was delivered around campus and there were three pages of our stories, right? So literally <laughs> forcing people or <laughs> accidentally getting people to read our stories. And from that, I saw a lot of people who would have otherwise took a very convenient conservative position be like, I had absolutely no idea. And even if I have to take some time to rethink my beliefs, and even if I can't fully commit to accepting a different position, what I can is say is I apologize. So I hope that's some kind of helpful advice regarding that question. I want to say two things real quick. Um, one, and I've kind of had to learn this uh, over, the, over the last couple years, is that I am not, as much as I want to see change and I want to do work that will help people uh, find themselves. Uh, it is not my job to convince homophobic people not to be homophobic anymore. <laughs> you know, it's not my job to convince them that I am worthy of being loved. Uh, it's not my job to uh, change their thinking. Uh, they have their own shit to work out. And I think that is very important to know that you are not responsible. With that said, we all want to see the world change. I 100% believe that representation matters. And um, I think it matters in us, of course, as we've been talking about uh, all morning, sharing our stories. 
But I also think it's in everything. It's in it's in media. It's in um, you know queer artists talking about uh, you know your Sam Smiths of the world and and Troye Sivan's back to Melissa Etheridge and Katie Lang and you know it, people used to be so scared to come out and we're even seeing that in these biographies of like Queen and Elton John and. Um, now people are boldly just proclaiming their truth. And it's because they do so, so many young people know it's okay for them to proclaim their truth. And, um, you know, it's, it's an Ellen uh, being on talk show. I love Ellen. Sorry. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it, I'll just share one last thing real quick. But uh, my daughter, I have a little girl, for those of you that don't know, and um, she's nine. And her favorite Disney show is this show called Andy Mack. And on Andy Mack, um, the very first Disney character ever, uh, last season, last year, uh, uh, Andy's a girl and her best friend, uh, Cyrus, he comes out as gay to her on the show. And I was watching that with my daughter, and I was just a mess. And my daughter had no idea why I was a mess, because she's like, oh, yeah, that's great, he's gay. And I just thought, I, uh, I just thought, oh, my gosh, that is so cool, because how many kids did that set free in that moment? And uh, not true in it for all of you that aren't watching Disney shows with kids. But, uh, but the uh, finale... Um, the finale of the show just happened last week, and uh, and um, at the very end of of the show, uh, that boy got his uh, you know basically first boyfriend, first you know uh, relationship, and that had never happened on Disney. And I think about all the shows I watch that, and all the stories you're um, being taught from movies and TV and music and, and within your church and within your uh, school. And, and you thought, and to continue to think, am I okay? Am I normal? Is something wrong with me? To see something like that where these two boys held hands on this show, I was a mess. But, and I, I'm about to cry right now. But to watch that with my two kids where they go, oh, yeah, it's okay to love whoever you want to love. Boy, representation matters 100%. And so it matters in the church. It matters showing that there are adults willing to show up at church and be their best queer selves, where these kids know it's okay for us to be queer too, where they're allowed to serve in leadership with the youth group or be a worship leader and not closeted. And, you know, and so uh, just to continue to go, where can we represent? It's representing on Congress. Or, or, do you call it that here? Uh, no. Uh, in government. And, uh, you know, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it, it, it's just continuing to, where can we represent and do it with everything we have? Three, there's three minutes. So. <laughs> it doesn't address the Great. Um, right and, and I just want to say it now while I have the chance when I have such a large group to talk to. And I want to um, ask you to take notice of the beautiful modeling that um, Bishop Yvette Flunder gave us and that Lena Ann gave us, speaking of sisters and brothers and siblings. We really need to stop only talking about sisters and brothers or brothers and sisters in the church. We need to remember to include our non-binary um, siblings, brothers and sisters, sisters and brothers and siblings. Please do that. Thank you all so much for, for joining, for being part of this panel. Um, I understand it's lunchtime. 
Do you have things you need to say about that? Or? <laughs> <laughs> no, just a final thank you. Thank you, Matthias, for the session. Thank you to everybody. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.